If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So, um, we're going to be discussing this book, which uh, I have a proof copy of here, which has, this one you will know is 60s retro, whereas that one is 50s retro. A sort of brutalist cover and sort of people's detailing cover. Um, So... um, Lots of you, I suspect, will know uh, John's work from the blog Municipal Dreams, which has been going for how many years now? Four years. Four years. Um, And which has sort of increasingly become a sort of comprehensive uh, resource for not just municipal housing, but sort of municipal projects in general and the sort of reshaping um, of British cities in the 20th century by local government and the kind of of fate of it. Um, So... As I've sort of been reading it avidly for that for that time, I have I have many questions, um, and the book sort of takes the sort of housing part of that and concentrates on that. I think for obvious reasons, given its extreme topicality, um, and um, pretty much the only thing I problem I've ever had with it is the fact that, despite the fact that John is a former uh, Winchester City Councillor for the Labour Party, he has never covered the city of Southampton. Um, <laughs> I hope that one day this will be redressed. So, um, so without further ado, um, the first question would be, why municipal housing? Um, if you sort of look at, if you sort of compare sort of mass housing, or sort of mass non-market housing in Britain to, um, say, Germany or Sweden, it's quite conspicuous how much of it has been done specifically by, by local authorities as opposed to in Germany, trade union building societies and Sweden housing associations, usually backed by the Social Democratic Party, instead being done very directly by the sort of the, the state, but the local state. And I was wondering why why that came about specifically. Yeah, well, uh, you can all hear me, can you? This is, this is working, right? Uh, that's a good question, and uh, I think I've got sort of a series of ten quite difficult questions, so I'm sort of slightly, uh, slightly nervous uh, uh, as I sit here. And it's my first book event, uh, so thanks for coming, everybody, uh, and thanks for people that have tweeted and supported the blog uh, in the meantime, uh, which is really helpful and really appreciated. Um, that's all padding before I answer the question. Um, in terms of the question, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting question, and. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of my feet, to be honest, in, in part. Uh, I mean, the easy part is the failure of uh, 5% philanthropy, the, fa- the, the, the failure of philanthropic housing in, in the uh, Victorian era. Uh, that was, you know, that begins in the 1860s, takes, t- uh, takes off uh, further into, into the century. And there was this Victorian paternalist uh, philanthropic notion that... Um, uh, these, uh, a form of housing association could be could be formed with uh, the uh, support of wealthy investors, five percent return, um, and that would meet the housing needs of the of the, the urban population. Just to sort of stop you briefly, it's probably worth explaining what five percent philanthropy was for those that won't sure. know. Yeah, I mean the name kind of says it all to a large degree. But um, you say you've sort of got 
I mean, you could give a better explanation than Yeah. Me. Well, I mean, Octavia Hill is probably the, the person uh, who's, who's best known, but there was a very, various sort of artisans and labourers, dwellings, companies, and so on. Um, some 30 odd uh, of those enterprises in London alone uh, in the uh, sort of mid, mid 19th century. Um, and they were established by, as I, as I, as I mentioned, by uh, Victorian liberal reformers uh, who, who hoped that uh, by building their own their model dwellings, that they would, uh, in that way, rehouse the, uh, the, the working class, the urban, urban working class of, of the city. Um, various problems with that. The, 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 the main problem was the, signif- the, the, the level of the rents, which are too high uh, for all but the, the well-off and, and more affluent working class, and indeed uh, the middle class, lower middle class were quite significant uh, occupiers of these working class dwellings, in fact. Um, the, the other main problem uh, was that they simply couldn't build at scale. Um, they, the, the, the model didn't work. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, the private rental sector, as we know to the present day, simply had no interest in building affordable housing, and I'm using that term in a, in a literal and appropriate sense in this context. Um, the, the private rentals, private builders had no, no interest, no commercial uh, gain for them in building uh, low-cost housing for rental for, for, for the working classes. Um, in terms of uh, the rise of municipal housing, um, obviously the, two, the, the great coincidence of, of two, two currents really occurs in 1889, 1890, a uh, combination uh, in, in London specifically, but, but across the country of the uh, formation of London County Council, which became one of the foremost builders of council housing through its, throughout its fairly august history in that context. Um, and in, in 1890, the Housing of the Working Classes Act, um, which you know, emerges after a series of sort of fairly paltry and faltering legislative attempts to, first of all, legislate and regulate sanitary conditions, and then in very minor cases to uh, enable municipal building or municipal subsidy of, of, of building. Um, but it's, the, it's that combination of a, of a local government structure, a machinery of states, a machinery of local state with, with national support, um, and the, uh, the legislative uh, imprimatur from above, I guess. Um, just quickly, and sorry, I'm talking slightly too long, but um, I guess Owen's question actually raises another question, which is why did the why did housing associations not not uh, emerge in the way that it did on the continent? And I suspect that uh, I've got my kind of labour historian hat on here, rather than my housing hat. Um, I think that sort of lies more in the fact that uh, the labour subculture in Britain, the sort of trade union and working class subculture, was was fairly attenuated. It was very a very focused on parliamentary means and uh, limited industrial action. There was no real uh, labour subculture in that way. Uh, trade unions focused very much on uh, labour representation and industrial relations, uh, but didn't see themselves in performing a, a, a larger role for the most part. Um, so, I mean, some of those criticisms that one can sort of make of, of, sort of charitable housing in the late 19th century can also be made of the first generation of council housing. As you point out, the um, boundary in in Shoreditch, which is frequently claimed as the first, although you have other examples, I think now demolished in Liverpool? Uh, Yes. As as the actual first. So Liverpool was first and then they got rid of it. Um, So London has the first extant social housing, public housing. Um, But that, that was to a large degree, for the deserving working class or above. that The people sort of moved on from the old nickel slum that was formerly on the site, didn't manage to sort of um, to get flats on what was built in its place for all their undoubted policies. So in many ways, the sort of takeoff is in the interwar years, um, which seems to come sort of partly from um, the sort of idea that, 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 that municipal housing would be a sort of uh, a sort of reward for service, the sort of homes for heroes idea, and also for a sort of much more sort of strongly socialist idea coming from this. John Wheatley was the housing minister of the very, very brief Labour government of 1924 before the Daily Mail and MI5 brought it down. Um, and um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that interwar 
moment and where that kind of that, that sort of intensification of council housing comes from. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is the debate around council housing. What, um, um, part of that debate is actually around the impact of the First World War. Because uh, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, that in terms of legislation, in, in, in terms of the, the machinery, local government machinery, uh, that was all in place before the First World War. Um, and uh, if you look at the kind of detailed data, there's, there was a, a, a significant rise in council house construction uh, from, from 1910 onwards. Um, but probably nationally, not more than 24,000 council houses were built across the country before 1914. So obviously, despite that structure and that impetus towards building council housing, it didn't really take off until after the First World War, as Owen rightly points out, and as most people know. Um, the obvious thing, and it's, it's clear to, to everybody here, is the Homes for Heroes program of uh, the Addison Act of 1919. Um, Either, as, uh, as you'll know, either as a reward for the, the sacrifice of, um, of, of, of the British working class, either on the Western Front or on the Home Front, some uh, definite notion that uh, that should be rewarded, uh, that the, their full participation in the society should be recognised. Um, there were, of course, other much more... Uh, uh, Difficult currents, so far as the government was concerned. Uh, obviously, the Glasgow rent strike in 1915, uh, huge movement uh, uh, protesting against uh, increased private rents at the time, which were subsequently frozen uh, in consequence. So there were the, the second fear, of course, in, in, in conjunction with the, the Russian Revolution, um, was that the working class might turn nasty, um, that they might become revolutionary. That seems unlikely in the British context, um, but there certainly was very significant militancy in the First World War around the shop stewards movement, around the rent strikes and so on. Um, but the other important thing to say, so I've, I guess I've identified two currents there, one being obviously Homes for Heroes, the reward element, two being the, the SOP, the palliative to the fear of working class militancy. Um, the third one, which is kind of needs to be understood, is simply that the, the, the private sector could not would not, but, but, but actually really could not provide housing uh, at scale for working class people in 1919 at war's end. The whole system was in crisis. Uh, rents were frozen. They had to stay frozen given the sort of uh, labour conditions of the time. So there was no interest in private rental. The private rental sector was, was dead to all intents and purposes at that point. Um, speculative builders had no interest as we, as we discussed already. Um, so... In 1918, 1919, I mean, the, the discussions begin in the middle of the war as to what's going to happen afterwards um, around housing. Um, so by the, by the war's end, there is a consensus, a cross-party consensus, that if the working class are going to be decently housed, uh, it's going to be, have to be done through, through the action of the local and national states, uh, simply because the private sector cannot, could not possibly uh, meet that need. The sort of idea of it being a, a, a cross-party consensus is something I, I, I'll come back to presently. But one thing that's also a sort of consensus at that point um, is about the form for these, this, this sort of expansion of council housing that happens in the, in the 20s and 30s, which, apart from a few experiments in, in sort of de- high-density inner-city housing in London, Liverpool, and Leeds, is otherwise the cottage estate. And one of the things that's always sort of in, in, in intrigued me in, in Municipal Dreams as a, as, a, as a blog, and it's sort of repeated in the book, is that you're coming at this very much from the angle of a social historian rather than an architectural historian, um, which I think is, is very necessary. It's just far, much, far too much kind of like, wow, isn't this building beautiful? Wouldn't it be great if we all moved into it and privatized it? Um, going on around at the moment. So, um, but sort of partly as a sort of, um, architectural historian of a sort, but also as a former inhabitant of a cottage estate, which I deeply disliked on aesthetic and social grounds. Um, I've always sort of been sort of interested in, in where that idea of not just of the sort of, the, the sort of expansion of the garden city idea to, to house the working class, but also the extremely low densities of of that housing. Where did this come from? Uh, well, technically, of course, it came from the Tudor Walters Report in 1918. I, I referenced the sort of work that was done during the war uh, uh, to anticipate post, post-war needs. And the Tudor Walters Report was, of course, the, uh, the template for what happened subsequently. Uh, and very low densities, around 12, 12 homes per acre. 
Um, the roots of that, I think, uh, are twofold. Uh, and one is, and contrary, you know, and, 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 and uh, sort of, uh, sort of proud urbanists like Owen get kind of a bit annoyed by this, but, but it seems to be the case that the labor movement, uh, that, as articulated, as, 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 as um, uh, expressed in their own kind of uh, desires and wishes for, for housing, wanted a house and a garden. Um, that was overwhelmingly the, uh, the language and uh, aspiration of the time. Um, you know, this was uh, when we talk about labour movement. We're talking about you know skilled working class, relatively affluent working class. So you know they they could perhaps aspire to this form of housing, um, but that was was always the the gold standard. I think uh, from from the pre war period, uh, and certainly you know into into the post post first world war period. Um, so that's. If, if, as it were, the voice of the people, if I slightly uh, rhetorically call it that. But, um, but it combines, obviously, with kind of uh, the arts and crafts sensibilities um, of people like uh, Unwin and Sir Raymond Unwin, um, obviously uh, the Garden City movement and Ebenezer Howard. So there are, in terms of planning, those planning currents which are emerging from the 1880s, 1890s uh, are also very much emphasising the cottage um, not necessarily cottage suburb, not necessarily Beckentree, you know, with a population of 120,000 uh, population. That, that was a kind of scale and enormity they probably didn't uh, uh, anticipate or, or particularly respect. Um, but I think in terms of that basic two-story house with garden, uh, with the healthy kind of salubrious suburban character uh, around it, I think that's what you know was was desired. I suppose what I find interesting in, in, in that moment is if you contrast it with um, similar housing coming out of sort of the labour movement in, in say the Weimar Germany or in the Netherlands, um, it's also suburban and it also frequently includes houses of gardens. And you've written about these um, very well on the blog and briefly in the book. Um, but aesthetically, there's this shift into something much more sort of abstract and, and radical. And I suppose that doesn't really hit Britain, with a couple of minor exceptions, until after the war. Um, so what do you think was behind this sort of quite sudden shift um, in the late 40s and 50s from the kind of cottage estate and these sort of endless sort of looping cul-de-sacs and big front and back gardens to the um, much more sort of urban image of the post-war in a city council estate, and particularly the sort of most notorious and probably now partly half most criticised, half most celebrated aspect of this, which is the tower block. Yeah, um, well, another, another, another big question. Um, it's a big book. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, yeah, read the book, you probably get more coherent, coherent answers hopefully, from, from the book. Um, <laughs> Well, if Owen doesn't mind, I will briefly backtrack also because it is absolutely true to say that modern, you know, modernist ideas did not take off in interwar Britain compared to what you can see in Berlin and so on. Um, and uh, you know, it's interesting because councillors did go on these kind of all, you know, delegations. They did visit Vienna, they did visit Paris and Berlin and so on, and came away thinking. It was all very nice, but not really quite suitable. Um, Quarry, Quarry Hill in Leeds, which some of you, I mean, it's demolished in the ni- late 1970s, was, the, I think, really the one scheme which kind of emulated and actually exceeded those kind of Viennese models. Perhaps from Liverpool is also an interesting one, and so far as Liverpool built a lot of sort of very Viennese, sort of red Vienna-style housing um, as part of a sort of sectarian settlement under a Tory council, which I've always thought was rather extraordinary. They did. They had, but they had a very uh, fascinating uh, city architect, Lancelot Keyes, that uh, really did some fantastic work. Um, Liverpool, I think, is a, as my family will tell you, is a, it's a story unto itself, really. So it's, it's hard to sort of uh, talk about Liverpool as being anything other than distinct and separate culturally. Um, but it does. It did have a strong urbanist culture from the, from the outset, uh, and did build uh, along with with the LCC. Twenty um, percent of housing in Liverpool was flatted in the interwar period, but they also built very large ca- council suburbs. Yep. Um, but modernism didn't take off. Uh, the Osserton Estate is the one that kind of looks looks a bit modernist next to the British Library. You, you, a lot of you will have seen, um, but you know, fl- flat is to deceive, really. Um, I should answer the question in terms of post-war, post-Second World War period. Um, it's it's a kind of slow burn, I think. Uh, I think you know the 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 key thing that happens is really 
again, planning, planning, uh, kind of urban planning, town planning, that, and the idea of planning per se, which, which takes off in the 30s, but doesn't find voice and uh, power until obviously 1945. Um, City of London plan at Abercrombie, it's the 75th anniversary this year, so I'll be speaking at a, an event to celebrate that later, later on in the year. Um, Patrick Abercrombie in London envisaged the London population falling by 360,000, or at least 360,000 people being moved to the new towns and so on. But uh, as part of that program, um, he, he recognised that you had to build at higher densities in the inner city. Uh, that was also had been you know, recognised in the five-storey tenements. We haven't talked about those. Uh, they don't kind of conform to any kind of uh, glorious urbanism or, or modernism. But they are, of course, a really important intrinsic reality of council housing in, in inner London. Um, but the, in the post-war period, it was recognised you had to build a density, um, which was one thing. So you had to, you had, it was, there was a sort of, almost a sort of implicit, it wasn't, it wasn't a sort of articulated embrace of high-rise, but it was a, a sort of de facto recognition that it was going to be necessary. There was, of course, no expectation it would house families with children at that point. Um, the other thing that happens, I think, in terms of the, 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 the move towards multi-story is, um, secondly, uh, the rise of, well, an, a, a realisation that the overwhelmingly preponderant form of council housing up, up to 45 had been these two-storey homes, uh, two-bed, two three-bed council houses, family housing. Uh, by 1945, it was, it was very clear that that, that, that that form of housing simply wasn't catering for a very significant swathe of people, uh, elderly people, single-person households, couples, whatever. Um, so people that wanted to live near to pubs in the city centre and didn't want to be in this sort of like rather sort of already quite criticised environments that were quite criticised for the sort of desolation and the modernity in many yeah. ways. I suppose well, that's what is of interesting. That's your spin, yeah. Um, well, but that's what, what I suppose what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that what what sort of happens in the 40s that I find interesting with the sort of shift into modernism <laughs> is that it's the first time that the, the sort of aesthetics get incredibly politicised in the way people discuss council housing. Something which then happens again and again and again. That if you sort of read things like Thomas Sharp's book Town Planning, which is a sort of hugely popular pelican published in the 40s that thousands and thousands of people read, um, that. Um, has this total blanket condemnation of the cottage estate. Completely kind of like, this is, this is worthless, it wastes land, it's desolate, it's pointless, it's bleak. And then this other thing is set up, which then, by the end of the 60s, is then being criticised on a whole other sort of new set of grounds. Um, so it sort of becomes a sort of aesthetico-political football in a way. And I suppose what, I, what, what I've always... What, what, I, what interests me a lot in this is the way that you sort of trace quite a lot of the media response... Um, which initially is, seems to be very, very positive to the shift towards the multi-story. There seems to be a lot of, you know, the Princess Anne goes and op- opens a block of flats in Woolwich, all this sort of bizarre stuff now. Um, the, and, the, the, and then there's sort of also a lot of detail on the sociology of, sort of people initially being quite positive about this stuff. And then it sort of curdles, and then the sort of sociologists and then the media, it's not quite clear what happens first, um, start to sort of reconceptualise these from being the sort of brave new world into being the sort of terrible dystopian failure, and um, sort of even sort of before Ronan Point, this this is starting to happen, and after Ronan Point's collapse, the collapse of the sort of system built tower in, in Poplar, that this kind of this huge sort of wave then comes in. And what do you think's behind that wave? Um, but do you, well, I, I suppose do, 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 do you find those criticisms to be? Justified? Do you think that there is something that went wrong? Well, it's 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 the long move towards multi-story, and and, and just as a caveat, I'd, 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 I'd emphasise that you know uh, high-rise tower blocks, of course, became the kind of iconic image of of council housing, became the kind of dirty story of council housing, I guess, um, and we'll we'll come back to that, but. Um, um, it was it was it was a slow it was a slow burn, you know. Um, I, I think in terms of sort of golden ages of council housing, I, I mean, I did identify the nineteen seventies, which is after the after the kind of high rise boom. Uh, I'd also look at the nineteen fifties, in fact, because um, I think in the context of, of, of emergent high rise, 
you, you need to talk uh, talk about mixed development, and because that was a big idea in the fifties, um, and that was both an architectural and a kind of sociological concept. Uh, architecturally, it was really important because they did take the view that um, the cottage suburbs were were dull and monolithic and boring, and they certainly didn't give architects much scope to exhibit flair or uh, daring. So. Um, there was architecturally a shift towards mixed development, which was a mix of low-rise, medium-rise, and sort of growing high-rise. Um, but the, 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 the sociological aspect of, 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 of mixed development, of course, was, was to cater for that mixed population that, that, I, that I mentioned. Um, what happens, of course, you know, 1956 is usually taken as a kind of a turning point. I think that's probably more of a sort of uh, a signifier of a shift that was taking place and going to take place anyway. But the, the, the high-rise subsidy in 56 is, is, is sort of conventionally taken to, to mark the point at which high-rise became uh, de rigueur or, or more expected. Um, but uh, I think... Uh, there is a kind of, I mean, I think, in, I think what happens in the 60s uh, is two things. I mean, up, up, to the, up to the mid-50s, basically, most new housing is concentrated on, you know, dealing with the immediate post-war crisis, rehousing those affected by the blitz or living in um, damaged, damaged, damaged homes. Um, slum, slum clearance and rehousing becomes the really the kind of motif and the, the, the single driver of council housing from the mid fifties into the sixties, really for the for the rest of its lifespan, um, and I think uh, in combination with the kind of the political arms race of the of the nineteen sixties, when conservative governments, this is kind of ironic nowadays, of course, but when when conserv- the conservative party and the Labour Party were engaging in a sort of uh, a race to the top in terms of who could build most <laughs> housing and and, in, and in, as part of that council housing in huge numbers. Uh, that drive to, to clear the slums once and for all, to clear the skirt of the slums, um, which which were you know uh, prevalent in, in huge numbers at the time, uh, and people tend to forget that now in their sort of sort of romanticisation of, of the Victorian terrace. Um, so that drive to clear the slums um, and to rebuild, I think, does create that dynamic to build at scale, and at scale increasingly means uh, building at height. Um, and of course, given those drivers, given that kind of political imperative, um, obviously is also the move in the in the, the mid sixties to to use system building. Nothing intrinsically wrong with system building. It's you know it's a, it's a, a perfect solution in the, in the machine age and in the in the technocratic age, the, the white hot heat of the you know. Technological revolution that Harold Wilson talked about in '63, um, system building was 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 an obvious way forward. Uh, it just was very badly implemented for the most part in the British context. Um, I suppose on a social level, I suppose what I'm trying to get at, like like what what what, what, what what's so, so interesting in this is that it's a, it's it's an issue that's been sort of. It's frequently treated in this very emotive way. You know, people have this sort of very, very sort of over-the-top language when talking about it. And, um, and this sort of sidesteps that completely and has a sort of much more sober sociological take. So if one were to kind of open a newspaper in the mid-1970s and, you know, sort of... Well, if you had Google in the 1970s, you wouldn't. But if you sort of search for the word tower block, a whole load of associations would have, would have come with. And also if you search for the word municipal, a whole lot of associations that come with that, which I think at that point would have been almost universally negative. And what, one of the most important things in this is the attention that you give to the 1970s and to the sort of reaction against the sort of um, Macmillan and Wilson sort of battle for numbers and almost a sort of much more relaxed period of council housing in which the sort of criticisms are in some ways being listened to and there are quite a lot of interesting experiments. You mentioned particularly Camden Council and Camden Council's quite extraordinary housing programme and also Biker and Newcastle. Um, and these sort of suggest that, that these things that were kind of being treated very much at the time as being monolithic actually were responding to criticism and responding in some ways to local democracy. So I suppose what I would ask is whether or not you think there's sort of any, any sort of justification behind the very, very frequent criticisms of council housing from the left in the 1970s. We'll go to the right in a moment, but 
And first of all, there's a sort of huge critique from the left, the kind of libertarian left, anarchism. You know, one of the, kind of the most read writers on housing, probably by non-architects, is Colin Ward, who has a sort of passionate opposition <coughs> to council housing of any sort, calls it municipal landlordism, and ended up with this rather bizarre position where he thought we should all live in Jaywick. Um, but there's a kind of... Um, you know, do, do, do you think that there's any, any sort of truth in this? And do you find that there's sort of libertarian alternatives to it that were proposed, such as self-build, which Lewis, Lewis from Council kind of dallied with for a bit? Um, do you think there was any real credence to this? Do you think that the, the, the criticisms were, were justified? And can you imagine a sort of more libertarian mass housing, or is such a thing a contradiction in terms? Sorry, well, that's a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, well given, given... Were the anarchists wrong, or were they, were they right? Were well, they stupid, or were they clever? They were wrong, and they were stupid. Good. Uh, Glad to establish that. Can we move on? Um, no, I, I'm, I mean I'm a bit old school uh, in, in, in this context. Uh, if you've read the blog, if you, you know, if you read the book, hopefully, um, I, I celebrate municipalism. Um, I'm not blind, of course, to its failings. Um, and there were failings. I think those failings probably were quite powerful in the 1970s. I think. Uh, I mean, the history of the history of sort of. Tenant, tenants' uh, responses to, to housing is very interesting, you know, uh, and, and media responses to it as well. Um, and it is a very shifting story, you know. I think uh, I think we're dominated by a single narrative at the moment. I think we're, I think it's good to take that long view, which is what I try and do. Um, in terms of the kind of critiques that emerged in the seventies, um, I think it's I think it's true to say that council a lot of council a lot of housing departments did become rather hidebound, they did become uh, paternalistic in, a, in the kind of uh, rather bad way they were sort of bad, bad fathers rather than good fathers in that context um, housing, housing departments were very kind of uh, paternalistic uh, actually quite matriarchal in the, in the 20s and 30s because given the role of sort of uh, lady housing inspectors uh, formidable women that would uh, check that the sheets were clean and so on um, so there's, you know, there's, a, there's a sort of there is a powerful tradition of council house paternalism, uh, you know, alongside with the sort of uh, estate-based caretakers that also kind of ruled the roost and uh, clipped, clipped the, uh, the, the, the then perpetrators what, what wasn't then called antisocial behaviour around the year and uh, you know, sent them packing. Um, and of course, a lot of that, a lot of that sort of um, enforced respectability, if that's the, which is kind of what it was. Was 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 embraced and, and and welcomed by the rather you know respectable working class that p- predominantly occupied council housing. I think what I think what happens by the sixties, and this is kind of way too incohate to be a very kind of coherent response. But I think you know there is a decline of deference. Uh, on the one hand, there is that uh, there is a rejection of that kind of uh, top-down, rather heavy-handed uh, paternalism. Um, it is also the case, I think, that um, council housing budgets, even the 70s, are, are becoming uh, restricted. I think they, they, they are failing to invest in maintenance and you know, adequate repair services and so on. Um, so I think the kind of criti- criticisms that emerge, uh, and of course alongside that, you do have genuine construction problems in system building and so on. So there's a lot going on in the 70s. Um, so I think one can understand where that kind of anarchist critique, where that sort of left critique comes from. Um, but I think it kind of marks a moment. In terms of alternatives, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty simple soul, honestly. And I, 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 I kind of like the model of the, you know, the public works loans board, um, you know, low, low cost uh, subsidies, always paid off, of course, so not, not a subsidy in any true sense of the word. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple model. It was a very effective one for, uh, you know, Decades of, of, of housing history, um, and you know, while I pay due respect to you know, some very interesting initiatives promoted then and you know being promoted now in terms of self-building and community land trust and that, and this is all good stuff. And it is, these are interesting models, um, but overwhelmingly, of course, the simple reality is they're very small scale, and they tend to expect people to be activist. Actually, most people don't want to be activist. They want to. They want decent landlords. They want you know. We all want you know. Whether you're renting privately or renting uh, publicly, as it were, you just want somebody that's going to do their job, look after the house. You don't want to. You don't want to be involved in your housing other than 
a bit of DIY and a bit of gardening. So, so I'm very skeptical of the kind of models which require that that um, that that degree of commitment, a political engagement. You don't want to build your own house. No, I wouldn't no. be a good idea. Um, so, um, this is obviously the book about the rise and fall of social housing. Um, so, moving on, to, moving on to the fall. What, um, which there's a lot of detail on this, a lot of very, very good detail that sort of often sort of detail you want to whack people over the head with in many cases. Um, but that the, the, the um, one of the sort of central kind of puzzles of it is the way that the Tory party moves from being an institution which actually built huge quantities of council housing um, um, in the interwar years and in the 50s, built tons of it, um, to um, a sort of much more radical right movement that sort of starts to reconceptualise the very idea of council housing as a socialist one. A whole sort of Thatcher decide, sort of brands a whole load of things that, that parts of her party had been previously been committed to as socialist. These things that weren't previously considered socialist are now considered socialist. And I suppose, what, where do you think this sort of animus, how does this animus sort of seep into the Tory party and how does it manage to become so popular and how do people fall so easily for the right to buy? Uh, I think it's, I think it's a, a, an interesting story to be told about sort of conservative policy towards council housing. Um, in the long story, I think there's a really, for, for me, what I what I perceive is a really important kind of cleavage between kind of basically broadly left-wing Labour views and Tory views in, in, towards council housing, even when both parties were building in, at scale. Um, and for Conservatives, the, the, the notion was that council housing was always for those that could aspire to know better, um, essentially housing for last resort, um, housing for those with, with special needs in, in some shape or form, slummy housing notably. Um, and that was clear in the legislation in the 1920s and in the 1930s and in the, and in the 1950s. Um, so does that division, and of course, we, I think we briefly mentioned this, obviously for, for a key moment in its history, at least Labour wholeheartedly always had this kind of vague notion that housing, that council housing should serve a, a cross-section of the community. Uh, that was you know, legislated in 1948 when the stipulation that council housing be considered working class housing, be designated as such, was removed. And of course Bevan was the great <coughs> spokesman for that communal ideal. Um, the, you know, the, the mixed tapestry, of a, the living tapestry of a mixed community. Um, the Tories always saw it as second-rate housing for a, uh, a subset a subset of the community. Uh, that's, I think, the, sort of the, 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 the background to, to the big change that Owen identifies. Um, what happens in the 70s, I think, is partly um, all the... Sh- I was going to say about weather. All the trouble that we've identified in the 70s, you know, there, there is a shift. There is a shift in perception towards council housing. Um, it is having been overwhelmingly celebrated in the 60s, fairly universally sort of slagged off in the 70s. So there is a, a cultural shift there to which the Tories, in, in a sense, are both sort of agents and responders to. Um, the, the other shift, of course, is that owner occupation is rising, um, that you know, working class owner occupation is becoming a thing, uh, becoming a significant uh, phenomenon by the 60s into the 70s. So whereas for working class people, uh, really, and up to the 70s, up to the 60s at least, uh, council housing was really the, the, the best you could aspire to, and it was, a, it was a, a good thing to aspire to, so I'm not saying that in any kind of negative way. Um, whereas by the time own occupation is emerging, as a working class own occupation is emerging in the 60s, it becomes quite it's a second tier, so second, second rung on the ladder. Uh, and you can see the you know, opinion polling at the time records that shift amongst working class people. Um, so there's this sort of broad transition, I think, to which the Conservatives could be seen as uh, both, as I said, both sort of cause and consequence in a sense. Um, but the other thing that happens, of course, uh, with, 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 with Thatcher is, is really the rise of the new right um, in the 70s. So you've got you know, Hayek and Friedman, you've got Keith, Keith Joseph's reading list. Um, so this is a new form of conservatism. You know, this is not, and these are sort of simple terms, but they have some Validity, you know, this is a shift from one nation tourism. It is a shift towards new right uh, ideology, um, and that view 
that um, council housing promoted a dependency culture, that it that it you know impeded social mobility, that it in, uh, restricted enterprise, became very powerful uh, in the 70s. Really became the sort of driving force of of, of, of the Thatcherite revolution, really. Um, and last but not least, uh, and you know uh, the simple fact, but the undeniable fact, and this you know you can this is pretty documented. The assumption being that um, that the correct assumptions it happens that council housing promoted labor voting was also a very good reason to promote own occupation and to sort of uh, reduce the uh, the impact and scale of council housing i thought about it which was a remarkable tenacity it was very telling of sort of nick clegg saying after in his sort of confessions of the coalition that he had proposed building more social housing to cameron and it only was, no it only, be, only breeds labor voters but um i was kind of asked lots of things about new labor and about New Labour's um, sort of attempt to try and continue some sort of affordable or social housing while, while relentlessly denigrating council housing. But we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask what's going to be my last question, which was, if you were to pick two or three favourites, like examples of municipal housing you think are just tip-top, the best that was built, or, the, or just personal things that have a place in your, in, in your personal canon, what would they be? Yeah, so because I'm going to pick a whole lot of cottage suburbs just to just to, <laughs> just, just to annoy you. Some sort of cottage um, suburbs somewhere in the outer reaches of the West yeah. Midlands. That's, you know. um, yeah, well, I, I don't know, offend anybody by, by by picking the wrong ones or not not mentioning your your your, your own favourites or your own places of residence. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really keen on the old on the old Oak Estate in Hammersmith, which is a pre 1914, pre First World War estate, which really is the kind of acme of that kind of arts and crafts pastoralism um, and beautiful housing. Dover, Dover, uh, Dover House Estate in Putney, uh, immediate post post First World War, is really the acme of homes for heroes. Similarly, really beautiful. Um, arts and crafts cottage estate. Uh, it's now a kind of very desirable enclave in, in Putney, according to the Evening Standard Home Property section, um, for, for very good reason. Um, but I, but I, should, I, I, will, I will extend beyond those, that, that form of housing. Um, I'm, really, I'm really fond of Churchill Gardens. Churchill Gardens in, in 2000 was voted by the Civic Trust, was, was, was selected as being the most sort of... Uh, the, the best housing development of the previous of the post-war period of the previous 40 years, and I think Churchill Gardens is a stunning achievement built by Westminster City Council, a Conservative council, um, in the post-war period by two architects aged about 23 and 24 at the time. So it really does capture that sort of that, that the height of that post-war idealism. So Churchill Gardens is great. Um, these are all London examples, aren't they? I mean, I'm obviously fond of Park Hill. I'm rather sorry about what's happening to it now. Um, I asked for three, you've got four. <laughs> so it's time for questions. No. Okay. <laughs> questions, questions. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, my question probably leads on from, from that uh, uh, at the end there. As somebody on the left who spent two years trying to defeat the HDV in Haringey, I always get this panic situation because Labour itself, Labour, Labour authorities have got, a, especially on the left, have always had a bit of a, yeah, in my view, when, when they get to take over radical housing policy, they kind of bottle it. And I look back at, you know, Lebetkin and Finsbury and uh, I think of Liverpool in the, in the early 80s. It always seems to be, and, and of course, Sidney Cook, you know, Ken Livingston and, 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 and his influence there. Do Labour always bottle it when, when given the opportunity to do something different and radical? Um, yeah, the most important thing about Camden is that it was, it was the third wealthiest authority in London in that period. Uh, in that period of Sidney Cook, and you know, I, I should have mentioned, of course, uh, it's referencing already, but you know, those superb housing schemes in Camden, and also in Lambeth, Cressingham Gardens, Central Hill, currently under threat. So I'd like to support those, uh, their survival, uh, and not their regeneration as, as proposed. Um, the thing about Camden was it was a, mel- a very wealthy authority. Um, it was a young and radical authority in terms of, of its, its councillors, so it did, it, there was a moment there. Um, but, you know, money is a driving force. Um, do, Labour, do, do Labour councillors always bottle it? Um, so I think left Labour councillors, I guess, is the answer. The sort of, the sort of, because the, the, I suppose what, what it was referring to, which is worth kind of spelling out for those that, that don't know it, is that when the left got hold of Camden under Ken Livingstone at that point, before he got control of the, the GLC group, um, they immediately stopped the sort of now much praised sort of modernist housing program and went for rehabilitating um, old terraces to dead. So I suppose that's the question then: is that what about the sort of the, the sort of non-mainstream Labour left? Well, I, I'm, I'm getting a lot of kind of I'm getting slightly, slightly mixed messages, I suppose. Uh, so it's quite quite hard to know what to, what, how to respond. Um, I mean, municipalism, which is which, which, you know the, 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 the sort of purchase of large swathes of private rental property, was actually a very positive policy. I think uh, very ne- uh, enabled it provided housing in larger numbers, which slum clearance couldn't because you couldn't build at that density. So there was a there was it made it made good sense. You know, that Islington and Camden and so on did that pursued that policy. Um, I'm going to try to get back to this question whether they bottle it or not. I think um, as a local councillor, as, as, as somebody that celebrates local government, uh, warts and all, um, the fundamental reality of, of, of British politics, because I used to teach A-level politics as well, and you could, you could summarise it in three <coughs> words to sort of, you know, the British constitution, is parliament is sovereign. Uh, local government, you know, this, <laughs> this is where you... you, you, you Clash, of course, with with alternative histories such as Milton, and we'll see what happens in Harringay. Um, but local government can only do what it's allowed to do. It can only do what it's what it, what, what it's uh, permitted to uh, afford to do. What it's allowed, how it's allowed to spend. So, um, and you know, the Labour the Labour Party is a, an intensely constitutionalist party. Is a social democratic party. Uh, it has uh, broadly pursued moderate politics for that time, and, and these are difficult uh, phrases to apply and controversial ones, maybe. Um, but I, I would simply take, I would, I, I would take the simple view that um, local government has normally acted within the constraints that uh, applied. Other questions. You were talking about um, housing being a kind of reward for having done something else in your life, so like Homes for Heroes. It made me think that that was also the case in Hungary in the 60s and 70s. They had this kind of... They built a lot of flats for like a standard citizen that they'd made up in their head, so there was, you know, two rooms and a kitchen. And you got that as a reward. You moved further up the waiting list 
if your job had more social worth. And that was how they solved this kind of housing shortage thing is they had this waiting list. And that's also the case here. If you're in greater need, you move further up the waiting list right now, right, in England. So my question is, both of these countries have allocation systems to get around a housing shortage, but does there always have to be a housing shortage? Um, well, firstly, I'd like to say in terms of Hungary that I'm probably one of the few people that actually lived in Hungarian public housing. I lived, lived in a, <laughs> I lived in a Hungarian uh, tower block flat for, for a year when I was living and working in Hungary. Uh, so I know, I know it a little. Um, Owen, of course, is the great expert on sort of uh, European housing and, and so on, uh, Eastern European... Eastern, you were asked the question. Eastern European <laughs> housing. Um, well... I mean, you ended up you ended up with a very sort of straightforwardly political question, didn't you? Uh, should there, should there be a housing shortage, or, or will there always be a housing shortage? Um, I mean, the answer to that should be no. Um, um, we need the political will. We need to have the kind of breadth of vision and the energy and aspiration to to house our people. It's as simple as that. Uh, and we have the resources. We have the means. Uh, but we, we haven't had the uh, political will or maybe the political pressure from below to, 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 to do that. Um, that's a sorry, rather glib response to your question. Uh, I mean, you, you ranged across some other things as well, which I haven't addressed. I, mean, I can think of a couple of examples where, there haven't, where, where shortages have not completely eliminated, get pretty close to it. One of the things that always struck me about the story, which I, can't, I didn't think is, is in the book, but about the, sort of the notorious Hume crescents in Manchester when they were... Um, which within a few years of them being built sort of collapsed into sort of social um, alternative cultures for using them. Um, and the city then had a policy of just like, well, we'll just move them on to all the empty houses that we have in the cottage estates in Burnage and Withenshaw because we've got shitloads. We've got loads of housing and the population of the city is declining and basically people can live wherever the hell they want. Um, but that lack of shortage was in many ways caused by Manchester's sort of demographic collapse and economic decline. Um, so I guess there's a question there which is more about whether or not you can have economic growth and a fair allocation of housing at the same time, which I think is much more of a, a much more intractable question. Yeah. Do I need to respond? Um, I think I'll leave it. I think I'll All right. You have to choose. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You've got the mic. Okay. You're, you're nearest. Cheers. Um, just what, what do you think was the, the biggest design flaw of, of post-war social housing? I think the biggest design flaw of post-war social housing was, was, was building tower blocks with lifts that didn't work regularly and reliably. <laughs> um, you know, it, it would have made a remarkable difference to, uh, to people's lives, but also the kind of story and narrative that emerged had uh, people you know, built... built uh, Lifts that worked, uh, maintained them regularly and properly, and so on. I mean, sorry, that's that's not quite as uh, sort of uh, facetious a response as it sounds. Um, I mean, the obvious design flaw is around system building, which was not not entirely, but um, but you know, obviously clearly in some cases in the human presence and, and and most most notoriously, um, you know, it was just really shoddily constructed. Um, it was built much better us better elsewhere so it didn't have to be that way but it was given the supervision and the kind of conglomerates the corporations that are involved um, so system building is an obvious thing um, but uh, I think the design flaw the design the, the essential design flaw is not tower is high rise no, it's not high rise high rise is perfectly acceptable and desirable housing for, for many people a, a cross-section of the population, probably not ideal for young children, obviously. Um, but, you know, it suited many millions of people over, over the years and now suits the affluent middle classes, so it can't be that bad. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't slag off high-rise, um, but I do think councils had the res- responsibility to make sure that their tower blocks were working efficiently, effectively for, for the people that lived in them. Um, yeah, so you've kind of outlined two sort of phases, two sort of responses um, that social housing was used to, two problems that social housing was used to fix. Um, one phase of social housing sort of interwar that is a reward, and then another phase of social housing which is designed to um, fix 
the lack of housing created by the Blitz and also slums. Um, so that's sort of housing as reward, housing as ending a shortage. In the period today, we don't actually technically have a housing shortage, we, uh, at least in sort of like if you take it in a square foot term. Um, and also there's no sort of real need to socially reward. Uh, so I was wondering what... Uh, what 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 problem are we using social housing to fix, and how does that uh, how should that change the shape of the social housing we intend to build? Uh, well, the need for social housing, of course, is as is, is powerful and, and, and strong now as it's as, as it's ever been, um, given the huge numbers on waiting lists, and these are waiting lists which have been kind of you know, radically pruned to, to limit them as far as possible. Uh, but millions of people on, on, on waiting lists, and of course million, millions of people in the private rental sector that don't really qualify for council housing would be delighted, I, I'm sure, to have a social landlord. So the need is there, and it, it, as you say, maybe there's I mean, there's a hidden housing shortage, isn't there, in terms of obvious, obvious homelessness, but, but, but more, more so hidden homelessness. Um, so the housing, the housing shortage that exists um, the need is still there, so um, I, I think the, the imperative to build such social housing as uh, part of a, part of a, a mix which provides a genuine uh, housing uh, reservoir for, for all those all that need it, as, as you know, alongside own occupation, obviously, um, is is as powerful today as ever. Oh, we got time for a couple more. Um, there's um, a story about Lena Jager, who who was the Labour MP for for Hoban, um, canvassing in a council block round here, I guess, and asking the voter to support Labour because of its nuclear disarmament um, policy, and being told, "Well, why would I vote for Labour to manage nuclear disarmament when it can't manage this block properly?" And I suppose. I'd be really interested for your reflections on that inability or that, or certainly the story of the inability of local authorities to actually manage the stock sufficiently, which I guess also helped to kind of ruin its reputation. Yeah, yeah well, Lena, Lena Jago was no, no, no fan of uh, the sort of uh, Regents Park estate and so on. She's, she's, she's on record of being quite very critical of that, of that housing barrack. She, she described it as looking like barrack barracks, I think. Um, well, you know, I, I kind of uh, gave, gave paternalism a bit of a pass, I guess. Um, but I think, it, I think it's true to say that um, Labour councils did become complacent, they did, did become moribund in the 70s, particularly where their, their sort of political foothold was secure, as it were. Um, and that, of course, is the interesting thing about the 80s. Um, you know, I think in lots of ways... Um, well, in, 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 in nearly all ways, in fact, I think probably management, and this is actually a terrible thing to say, I, I, I just realised in the context of Grenfell, um, which is uh, you know, the most awful contradiction of what I'm about to say, um, but I, I think uh, to some degree, to some degree a terrible exception. Um, housing management has improved, you know, it has improved, and it improved in the 1980s with new left councils that, that, that did decentralise, that did you know, look at... Uh, other forms of management and so on did become did realise they needed to become more responsive, more, and you get the language of customer, you know, customer oriented at this point. Um, so there were, I think, genuine attempts to, among the new left to do that, and of course there were attempts which were pretty much imposed by the the Tories, not as friends of local government but as uh, as enemies. But but nevertheless, there were some, I think, beneficial consequences in terms of council uh, of housing management and housing associations, of course. Uh, were seen as in, in that period as representing a gold standard of, of, of better, more responsive, more agile, and um, responsible management. Um, that's not always the case nowadays. I think because they've become equally kind of bureaucratic and monolithic or, or, or large scale in some cases. But I think uh, I think the cultural shift towards more de- decentralised, responsive management was important and necessary. And I think uh, the criticisms that were made were. In, in many cases, not all justified earlier. Yeah. One, one more. There's, there's a lot of talk now in policy about placemaking. And at its worst, I think it's vacuous marketing. But at its best, I think it's interesting and important about whole communities 
and infrastructure beyond housing and housing in context. Um, and I've reflected a bit on historically, at least, we talked about civic pride and perhaps associate that with other kinds of buildings, town halls, libraries and so on and so forth. So I was wondering if you had any reflections on the divergence, kind of historic and present between how we think about, or people or politicians or whoever you wish to think about, um, think about housing under that umbrella as opposed to other kinds of building which are also in place and which also belong to all of us potentially in that context. Uh, yes, Shall I answer what you think. Yes. Yeah. The thing that always um, the, the thing that always strikes me with this is signs. Like even when go, even before sort of going into things like building maintenance, if you go around your average London County Council estate, you will find the sign that was put. In many cases, you will find the sign that was in the building when it was built, and that sign will be ceramic. It might be very. It's usually very high quality. It's usually designed integrally of the architecture. It's usually very good typography. It's usually pretty sexy. And then next to it, there will be some sort of little piece of plastic affixed by like Southwark Council or Lewisham Council or so or what have you that will look awful. And it's almost as if to sort of say, you might be thinking that this building is, is, is of high quality. You might be thinking we're proud of it, but we're not. Look how not proud of it we are. And that sort of decline in, in, in sort of municipalities, sort of design standards even, I think really sort of shows that, that these things are all sort of a total afterthought. And they've been made, they've been forced into that, I think, to a large degree. Um, you know, that, 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 I don't, that I don't think that, that, that even if they wanted to in many cases that they could, um, you know, have a sort of decent program of, uh, of sort of properly <laughs> renovating estates and restoring all of those sorts of things on a sort of, sort of borough-wide or city-wide scale um, because the central government simply wouldn't let them in many cases. But that's the thing that always strikes me. The sort of not, they've got a good sign of the shit sign next to it. Probably true, and uh, hats off to the LCC and some very you know, progressive and uh, uh, good local councils which had really strong you know, architectural departments and so on. Of course, and that's the great loss in, in, in the current era uh, is, is the loss of the, the public sector architect, you know, um, and that, that, that ethos of service. Um, I think in terms of kind of placemaking and, and housing, of course, the kind of the acme was the, was the sort of post post forty five the the great drive to, to create neighbourhoods never quite fulfilled and, and and probably too kind of static and uh, sort of un, un, uh, unrealistic really ever ever to work because because actually people in the end people make places rather than places make people as it were um, so I'm a little bit sceptical about placemaking as a as a, as a as a philosophy to be honest. Um, but I think I think that was uh, the neighbourhood idea was certainly a powerful one um, in in the post-war period and probably um, did represent some some attempt to create the kind of uh, conscious and sort of corporate community that you you identify. I think we're out of time. Thank okay. you. Oh, oh, oh there's one question. Okay. Um, it'd just be uh, interesting to think if we do get a Labour-led government in the near future with the return of council housing, which is quite a big push uh, on the Labour left and the Labour Party generally now. Do you think we'll see a return to more high-rise, council-led architecture kind of ideals, or will we see a new kind of radicalism come forward? I, I... Sure. I think in an urban context, you know, multi-storey housing is, is, is going to be the thing, you know, uh, not necessarily high-rise, um, but sort of depending on where you kind of place the numbers, uh, but certainly medium-rise. medium, medium, medium rise. Um, I don't think, I think, I hope and believe that we will return to a, a much larger programme of council house building and social house building. Um, I think it will be. I think it will, will not replicate what's what, what's come before. I think I think a lot's changed, and a lot has, in some ways has changed for the better. Um, but you know, I think it's I think it's legitimate to talk about tenure blind housing, which doesn't sort of differentiate and segregate council housing. I think it's uh, I think it's quite reasonable to talk about pepper potting. So you you can move away from the kind of large estates. That I'm not an enemy of those estates, but I think you know I think times have changed. So, and I think you know. Given, given, uh, I mean, this is more of a London issue than elsewhere, perhaps. But given, given land shortages and so on, um, I think we're, we're going to be talking about kind of myriad of, rather you know, small scale schemes rather than anything sort of monumental as, as in the past. I mean, I would 
really disagree with that slightly. Insofar as I think it was that, that, that there's been so much sort of denigration of council housing, um, something which I think only only now are we sort of starting to kind of redress and starting to get away from. And I think that was something, one of the things that this book very much does. And even sort of some of the things in the Labour leadership, I was sort of a bit aghast after Grenfell when Corbyn made some comment about sort of like, well, of course, lots of these estates from the 1970s so it was really quite bad. And it was like, well. This has nothing to do, even regardless of your feelings about that tower, its design in the 1970s has l- absolutely less than nothing to do with why, it, with why it burnt down, killing 71 people. I found that really infuriating. And as a fully paid-up Corbynite, I, I found that sort of remnant of 70s hippiedom very frustrating. Um, but the, I suppose what, the, what, what, what's... Um, that to have something then that, that, that came along and said, this is municipal housing and we're proud of it, We've not actually, rather than having a sort of tenure blind housing um, that sort of tries to look like an ordinary bit of city that has some council housing in it, just having something that, 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 that sort of shouts from the rooftops, we are council housing and we think it's brilliant. I think that's actually would be, that would actually be a really good and progressive thing. Not necessarily that everything should be like that, but I think a few pilot projects that say that, 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 that do that would be very welcome. Well, it'd be. It'd be uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm no enemy of municipalism, as you know. So, it'd be, but I mean, I'd be interested in, to know what form that would take architecturally. I think mm. it's. A, I think it's. I mean, I, I, I prefer your answer to mine, actually. But uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll. Uh, I should give you the last word. Um, so I, I'll just leave. Suffice to say, I'm intrigued by what form that would take. Um, I'm, I've celebrated some great examples of municipal architecture and building uh, in the in the book in the blog. Um, so I'd be very happy to see that revived. Well, uh, thank you very much, John Borton and Owen Hathley. Uh, please come forward and uh, buy copies of the book. I'm sure the authors will be happy to sign. And uh, let's give them a very warm round of applause. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.